guys. How's it going? Patrick Ewell here, co-host of the Tennis One podcast. I know it's been a couple weeks since Madison and I did a show, but we've both been on the road. I was at the Dallas Open and she was at the Delray Beach Open just this past week. Actually, our colleague John Tierhoff was over at the Rotterdam ATP 500 as well. So we have a lot to talk about, a lot of behind the scenes stuff with those three tournaments that we're going to break down in our next episode, which we'll record tomorrow, Wednesday, February 22nd. So be on the lookout for that. But before that episode, we have a very special crossover edition of the Tennis One podcast to bring you via changeover chat. That's right. Our own Randy Masters show is back in the app. He's done hundreds of episodes with everyone from the tennis industry, from Rick Macy, who was Serena Williams' childhood coach, to talk about the movie they did a couple of years ago, to Patrick McEnroe, to Chris Everett tournament directors, people that work for different brands. I mean, you name them, he's probably talked to him on the show. So if you haven't, check out those archived episodes. We've got them on the news tab of the app. But we've got a big episode that we basically just had to steal for the Tennis One podcast and put it on here. He talked to Chris Fowler this week. Chris, if you don't know, is the lead broadcaster for ESPN and ABC when it comes to their tennis coverage. So the Australian Open, Wimbledon, U.S. Open, he does college football with College Game Day. He does the College Football National Championship game with Kirk Herbstreet. So the guy's an absolute legend. Really excited to have him in the app. It's a fun interview. We really enjoyed it, and we know you will as well. So without further ado, here is Chris Fowler on Changeover Chat, hosted by Randy Master. Welcome, fans, to the 119th edition of Changeover Chat, presented by Sportmaster Sports Surfaces. I'm your host, Randy Master. As you may have noticed, our show has been on a bit of a sabbatical as we have recently relaunched the show as part of our Tennis One podcast. But we are back today in a big way, and all I can say about our 119th guest, in the words of the late, great Keith Jackson, whoa, Nelly. Was, was that even close, Chris? <laughs> I, hey, listen, you brought in Keith Jackson's name. I'm, I'm always flattered to, to have him thrown out there. He was he was a, a friend and, and something of a mentor and a giant. Okay. Well, maybe at the end you can teach me how to do that. But You did it well. Okay. Today we welcome to the show one of the most well-known and respected sports broadcasters in the world. As a member of the ESPN team since 1986, our guest became the host of Scholastic Sports America for two years before moving to college football as a sideline reporter and in 1999 became the host of ESPN's Emmy Award-winning college football roadshow, College Game Day, built by the Home Depot, where he spent 25 years of fall Saturday mornings on picturesque campuses in the live company of thousands upon thousands of the craziest college football fans in the land. Our guest took over as lead play-by-play commentator for ABC Saturday Night College Football in 2014 and has hosted during his career ESPN Final Four coverage, FIFA World Cup coverage, ESPN's Heisman Trophy presentation show, along with the College Football National Championship game which proved to be a nail-biting barn burner this past January. (laughs) In In 2003, our guest took his talents to Southwest London SW19 to be exact as ESPN added 
the championships Wimbledon to the programming lineup and was named the primary host of ESPN's Grand Slam coverage. Over the years, he has become the lead play-by-play guy at the slams, including the finals of the Australian Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open. Our guest has received two Emmy Awards for his work on ESPN Sports Century. In 2003, he was ranked the most powerful media personality in sports, alongside game day co-hosts Lee Corso and Kirk Herbstreit. In recent years, he has launched a popular podcast, Fowler, Who You Got? You got to listen to it. He's a graduate of the University of Colorado or the University of Coach Prime, as they now call it, and is a native of Rockford, Illinois. Please welcome to the show, Chris Fell. Well, Randy, thank you. That was, that was quite an introduction. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, I was having flashbacks of those various chapters as you were going through them, but uh, it's great to be with you. I look forward to it. Thanks a lot, Chris. So, you know, Chris, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention I don't want to start off on a down note, but I do want to mention it. Uh, the devastating tra- tragedy at Michigan State on Tuesday, three students with their whole lives ahead of them, Alex Werner, Ariel Anderson, and Brian Fraser, lost their lives in another pointless mass shooting in the U.S., this time on a college campus, three months prior, and I remember you talking about it on social media, Deshaun Perry, Devin Chandler, and Lavelle Davis shot and killed by a fellow classmate at UVA. Now, Chris, you have called countless games in the East Lansing in Charlottesville, going back to Blacksburg and those horrendous events of 2007 at Virginia Tech. You have hosted game days on hundreds of campuses. You have a real connection to college students. You communicate with them via social media. You offer advice. You're looked up to universally at American universities in this arena. Now, in the context of all of the horrendous acts of gun violence in the U.S. that have gone on for years and years and years and years, do these at college campuses, and not that they all don't sting, but do these at college campuses that you spend so much time at, do they sting you a little more because it's so close to home for you? Uh, Interesting question. I think all of them should still sting because we don't want to get numb to it. You know, when you have more than one mass shooting on average per day in this country, which is a shocking stat that not nearly enough people are aware of, the tendency is to get numb to them. But we can't because these are lives, as you said, that are that are snuffed out and gone forever. Um, I think there was a time when I spent time on college campuses in the early years of game day when this kind of thing felt sort of unimaginable, right? right. It felt uh, far away from the idyllic setting of a campus where kids are there to learn and party and grow and to improve as people and make friends for life and all that stuff. And yet, as you mentioned, more and more in recent years, the kinds of mass shooting tragedies we see far too often are, are happening on college campuses. And I think now more than ever, students are aware of that. And I think the experience of being a college student or a high school student, or a grammar school student for that matter, has changed forever because of this. And yet what hasn't changed is the situations that lead to it and that contribute to it. And that's what's frustrating and disheartening. But yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the particular shooting at Virginia, we, we talked a little bit about because those guys were college football players. And yeah. I don't really use my social platforms very often to speak about 
the heavy issues. I don't think right. people look to me for that. But right. when it comes into the sports sphere, uh, you can't help it. And you mentioned Virginia Tech. That's one of the proudest moments I've had hosting College Game Day. Our handling of that situation, our honoring the collective grief at that campus when they were coming together for the first time, not to mourn the students, but to celebrate being Hokies at a football game. We took game day there. It wasn't about the matchup. The matchup was unimportant, but documenting the coming together of that campus and in some way that football opener the following season being used as a, as a place to heal and to console, um, that was important. So there have been times when these kinds of tragedies have crossed over into um, the little toy store uh, of the world that, that, that I operate in with my colleagues. But when it does, you just hope to hit the handle as, as best you can. Yeah, well, I'm gonna try to pick up the mood a bit here. Those aren't the easiest things to talk about for sure. Um, over the last few days or since you agreed to come on the show, and I think we went back and forth for a few years, Chris, but I'm glad you finally. It wasn't that long. You... No, I'm just kidding. Long. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but I've been thinking about you, Chris Fowler, in the context of a wide range of play-by-play -play broadcasters that can seamlessly go from sport to sport. Often it, it seems very effortless. You know, there's, and all these guys are your friends at, at, at some level. Mike Tirico obviously does it as well as anybody. Al Michaels went back and forth from football to hockey. And I'm sure a little bit before my time. I mean, I'm still watching him now, but he was doing a lot more, I'm sure, earlier in his career. Nance goes from the Final Four straight over to Augusta. Ted Robinson, tennis and uh, college football, college basketball, I think. Joe Buck, uh, Costas, Pat Summerall, legendary, um, was doing football. And then Tennis Emberg, Bill McAtee, and of course, the person I've seen call more games in more sports than anybody is this man, Chris Fowler, going back to- I don't know about that, man. You threw me in with a bunch <laughs> of legends. I mean, I, I, I have done some crazy stuff. I coached the X Games for a long time, but I didn't know anything about the X Games. They came to me and said, hey, we're doing this extreme sports thing. Um, you're one of the younger people on the roster. You've done some hosting and different things. And they threw me in there and it was it was learning on the fly. I've hosted NASCAR. I knew I was a fan, kind of, but I didn't know enough. Right. So I had to get up to speed, uh, no pun intended, to host the coverage there. Yeah. You got to drive a race car around Daytona, which was an amazing experience. So if nothing else, I didn't really help our coverage that much in the two brief years that I kind of helped out until we got a good team in place. But I had a hell of a time taking a race car around Daytona, just stuff like that. And then, then you know, the two sports that I do now are my two favorite sports. Yeah. And, and tennis and college football are nothing alike. They're very different to broadcast. Uh, I'm always surprised when people overlap and say, oh, I love tennis and I'm a big football fan or vice versa. I don't think that they have a lot in common. But to get to do the championship events at those two sports, for me, uh, spe almost specializing in them and, and not yeah. doing much else is, has been very, very cool. I loved doing all those different things, but but it's really nice now because we have had the rights for a long time to the biggest events in both those sports to be able to focus on my, my two favorite sports. And, and every bit of passion that I try to show each broadcast is totally authentic because I've been a fan of both those sports since I'm a little kid. Yeah, absolutely. But when you so I, I watch a lot of college football and obviously I see you and Herb Street and the whole game day crew Reese. And, you know, it seems like Herb Street has been there from the very beginning. 
know, <laughs> the, Corso the, was there from the very beginning. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I tried yeah. to find one of those things, but I, I couldn't. I don't who has those things <laughs> that you and, put on your head. Mascot head only yeah. the mascot and Lee Corso who borrows them. No one else but <laughs> Brutus Buckeye head. No. <laughs> but is it, you know, when you go through a whole season, I was trying to follow it this year because I thought you might come on the show uh in 23. When you go through that entire season of college football and then you're getting ready for you called the Rose Bowl, you called the national championship game. You're in this, you're in this war room that I saw. You've got a piranha on the desk, and I'll I'll climb it. It look it looks fun. I saw that. Um, that war room is that. my little office, man. That's my pet piranha. <laughs> um, but the question is, is <laughs> but you're not you're not looking at any tennis in there. And the Australian Open is right around the corner. And I mean, right around the corner, like two weeks away. Now, are you able to get in any tennis studying or following tennis at all? Or do you just get the national championship no, game done and then go right like, into it? I mean, that's kind of a downtime for tennis in there. Obviously, it's the offseason. There are the pre-Aussie Open tournaments going on that I'm keeping an eye on. Right. But no, obviously, you have to focus on what's directly in front of you. And at those times, it's the football playoffs. We do three games in eight days. Last year we did four games in 11 days because we did an NFL game mixed in with the playoff and the Rose Bowl. So, you know, those, those kinds of things take total immersion, but right. you know, I'm, I'm a tennis fan year round. And what, what makes it easier to get up to speed with the Aussie is it's reading about what they've done on the off season, coaching changes, you know, who's healthy, who's not, is the drug rich going to get in the country? Is he not? I mean, there, there's so much off the court news that yeah. make that. Um, I mean, the, the, the real challenge for me juggling comes when the U.S. Open collides with college football. And, and that's the yeah. part of the year that I, I mean, they're, for me, the most two challenging weeks, also really fun and fulfilling. But, yeah, I mean, the Open starts and the football season opens on the Saturday in the middle of that tournament. Yeah. So yeah. you got to do football prep ahead of time because when the Open starts, you know, that's total immersion for me. I, I'm not really doing much football that week, except in the margins. Like I'll call a match right. in the morning or the afternoon session, run back to my football chart, try to get, try to stop Brad Gilbert from talking in my ear and get some peace and quiet <laughs> focus on football for a little bit. Then there's, you're back calling a match at night and you do that the first four days of the U.S. Open before taking off. So it's, it's really challenging. I've gotten better at time managing and figuring out how to use my time efficiently, but that that is the real collision of my two favorite sports, you know. And it and it begins, um, it begins the the football season and sort of wraps up the Grand Slam season in tennis at the same time. Absolutely, yeah. For some reason, I've always had it in my mind that that jump from college football, probably just because I'm watching so much, and then into Australia, I didn't think of that. But yeah, those oh, are no, I mean, I, listen, <laughs> for years, I mean, I was so wound wound down, ground down at the end of football season. The only thing that would get me fired up at the end of all that every year is jumping on a plane three days after the championship game and going down to Australia for the Aussie summer and the beginning of the tennis season and everybody's saying happy new year and a happy slam. I, Melbourne is the favorite destination in the world I've ever been sent for work. Okay. I, I love, I love Paris. I love, we did the French for about 14 years yeah, I, I love Wimbledon as an event, but Melbourne as a city is amazing. So that was tough not to be down there. 
And uh, I would give anything to to crawl from football to tennis to get back down there to cover it in person. <laughs> yeah, well, I wasn't even going to get into this, but because you mentioned it, I didn't even realize that I knew you loved Melbourne. I mean, who the heck doesn't love Melbourne? If you're a tennis fan, it's the middle of the summer. I, I get it. Um, just bring, we don't have to get into this because it's been talked about, but a lot of people were upset about you guys calling the matches from uh, Bristol, right up the road for me, actually. Um, but there was a lot of talk about it. You came out in, in a way that wasn't harsh. I mean, you've worked, you've worked for ESPN your whole career, but you were upset that, I guess there are two questions here. You were certainly upset that you weren't calling the matches from down there. There's there's that part of it, just why are we doing this? But then the other part is, does it make your job that much? Can you do your job as well if you're sitting in Bristol than if you're right in the thick of things down in Melbourne? Like what was, what's I mean, the I ultimate think I... frustration? You can't do your job or you just would rather be down there? No, no, the latter. I, I listen. I mean, all of it, because our entire tennis team as one was right. frustrating. We, we want to cover the event in the right way. Of course, you want the experience of being down there on site and looking through a window and seeing the court from our little bunker versus calling it off the television set 16 time zones away. Right, Sports right. fans are getting used to that because, I mean, first of all, Tennis Channel calls most of their stuff from their studio. They, they're not on right, site right. often. Um, so it's becoming more normal in the sport, unfortunately. And the Olympics were called remotely. If people didn't realize that NBC did almost everything from America. And right. that will continue to happen going forward, I think. But no, I, there's no way you can broadcast a match or, more importantly, cover a tournament being disconnected that way. It's not just watching the points played out in person versus the monitor. You use the monitor a lot when you call tennis, you know, from courtside because it's a good vantage point sometimes. Right. It's just not being around it, Randy. It's not being around the players and the coaches, not watching the practice, not taking in the energy. You know, and then also in the case of Australia, we're doing it at 3.30 in the morning. I know it's been yeah. tough for viewers for years. We're, we're now right there with them. I can sympathize how hard it is as a dedicated tennis fan to get up in the middle, middle of the night or get right. up early in the morning and try to watch these matches. Easier up on the West Coast, but we live that. And, and I have great respect for anybody that's worked in the third shift because it was damn hard to do. Yeah. It's boring. I would run down our schedule. But no, to, to answer your question, we wanted to be there to cover it the right way. It was very disappointing for all of us. Cost cutting is real, not just at our company, but everybody and all kinds of different companies, not just in TV, are experiencing it. And, you know, the coverage there just isn't the same because we're, we're doing it a different way, period. But right. we tried to make the best of it. We love each other as a, as a group. There's a great camaraderie in that tennis family. And people, we're not going to be negative about it. It's our job to do the best we can for the viewer, regardless yeah. of if we're there or not. And so I think that sort of carried the day. But yeah, it was, you know, when I sat there a year ago and watched Barty and called Barty win the Australian, well, eventually it was her last match, and then called Nadal coming from two sets down to beat Medvedev in the men's final. I mean, what a weekend it would have been to be there. <laughs> it wasn't quite the same from long distance, but we do the best we can. Right, right. So again, I wasn't going to get into that, but it just seemed like a good oh, segue. Man, but people bash the company. I, I can't, you know, I can't join in on that. I we we you right. play the hand that's dealt us, even if we don't love it. 
But right, I right. understand. Let me just say this. I understand viewer frustration. And it didn't right. bother me to have them be bothered. Let's put it that way. Right, right. So moving back to where I was going to go, I really wanted to talk about, um, you know, how, how you started doing this. I mean, you know, you've had such a prolific career. Um, I've got to admit in the mid 80s and early 90s, when I first started seeing you on uh, in college football, I used to refer to you not as Chris Fowler, but the guy from Scholastic Sports America. <laughs> because because I saw that show so much. I don't know how you never covered me. I was a scholastic athlete at maybe that grades, time. Maybe your grades weren't good enough. You had to have the whole package, <laughs> man. You had to be an athlete. You had to do uh, something for the community, maybe. You had to have good yeah, grades. I, I don't know. Maybe you weren't, didn't hit the triple crown. No, I, you know, I was a great, <laughs> I, I'm not even going to get into it, but and I love the show, by the way. And I, I completely remember you. I mean, Chris, you don't look that much different now than. Uh, no, but I looked you, 11 years old, man. I, I was, <laughs> I was a year out of college and working in Denver, which I went to see you, as you said, I worked in Denver and TV, uh, just doing some kind of like cub reporter type stuff, but it was very flattering and very cool to be on the air at a market that size, the age I was. So I had a tape out there trying to get a next job and ESPN saw it and they called me and I thought sports center. Hey, this is amazing. I've been, you know, the company is only seven years old at the time I right. got hired. This is 86. We're talking about. So, yeah, but they didn't have sports center in mind because I, I really was, I, I got mistaken for high school kids when I was in the high school shooting these features and dressed in a t-shirt and jeans. They thought I was in the school and asked me for a hall pass. I'm not kidding about that. It, the crew used to love it because the teachers would come by and who's this kid? You should be in a classroom, not wandering around the school. And no, sir, I'm a college graduate. I'm here. Doing... But that was an awesome foot in the door. Yeah. And it, it was also, I don't know if you, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but people do ask me, you know, you've had one employer for 37 years now. It seems like a very straightforward career, but everybody's path is winding and far less linear than it appears from the outside. And I, I wasn't supposed to go to ESPN. I was told right. bad idea, wrong choice, because it was this cable outlet that was pretty new and going there to do a high school show on tape, you know, no live TV yeah. at, at that point for me was not what the consultants and the professors and the people who were advising me thought I should do. Right. But I just decided at that point, I'm going to listen to my inner voice. I'm going to cue out the static, listen to my gut and make a choice on what base like feels right for me. And that's been a guiding principle for me that I've used a hundred times since then in and out of the TV business. And so that's my advice to young people is, you know, a lot of folks mean well, and they are wiser and older than you, but it doesn't mean they know what's right for you when what right. you're hearing from your inner voice is something totally different. So all of us have to figure out how to cue out the static that interferes with that and just listen to what our gut says, listen to what our heart says in all yeah. things in life, I think, and yeah. follow that. And that's sort of my message on how I ended up with the career I did because I somehow had the sense to do that. Yeah, and you had, it was certainly a great decision. You go to, you know, from Scholastic Sports America, you go to college football as a sideline reporter then this thing called college game day starts and you know it, it's it, a lot of people maybe that watch this show because we have a lot of tennis fans might not know about 
you know, how successful that show has become. But when you look at it, and I was at ESPN for a time in sales, so I knew the ratings, you know, I knew a lot about the sponsorship with Home Depot, you know, these massive crowds that would show up at, you know, seven, eight in the morning on the West Coast. I think it was a little bit earlier, you know, Corso with the mascot. Like, did you, all of this stuff put together, it's such a spectacle, even when I turn it on now and Reese Davis is hosting it and there's Desmond and Herd Street looks like he's never left, even though he does 400 other things, but some, somehow he's always back at that seat. I'm like, wait, I saw him here and the question, Chris, is did, when you started that, was this like, hey, let's just go to the school, see if some people show up and, and let it roll? Or did you think you were on to something and that it could be something this big to this day? Because to me, it keeps, I turn it on every Saturday. And it's like there are more people than there were the Saturday before. So it's a lot. Yeah, of no, it's, ama it's amazing. I think the formula will continue. I, I think it's game day will go on forever. Um, I, I think that in 1990, when I started doing the show, though, it was a half hour in the studio leading into games that were really lowly watched at that point. Right. So right. it had no footprint in the, in the sport. It had no profile. And what I'm proud of is that, you know, Lee Corso at the time, a guy called Bino cook, then yeah. Craig James came in there and we were able to sort of build enough traction in a very small studio show to convince them in 1993 to take it on the road one time that year for the first time, FSU at Notre Dame, one versus two in November. And no, we did not know at the time it was going to become what it did. We had a feeling that, that it would make a difference and make it stand out. Because I think college football is the number one sport to be able to do an on-site pregame show. Other okay. sports try it, um, but it's not the same. And, yeah. and we, we showed up there, put a set down in the middle of the floor at the Hall of Fame in Notre Dame. They had no clue what we were doing. Right. how to mic it, how to, how to stage it. And somehow it worked. And we did know at that point, okay, we are onto something. We can do, do this again and again, more often. And in 94, 95, begin to get in the road more and more. And I think by 96, we're on the road every week. And it, you saw how profitable the show became. And, yeah. and, and there was a core group of people. I'm not taking uh, the credit for that. There was a core group that kind of worked, but you get very few chances in life, no matter what your business is, to build something from scratch, brick yeah. by brick, and have it yeah. become something important to a lot of people. And, and for have someone come and say, hey, you know, I grew up watching College Game Day. I watched with my dad on Saturday mornings. That was one of the first things I remember ever seeing on TV. How cool is that? Because I was yeah. that kid. I was watching sports from a really young age with my grandmother. And she yeah. was the one that into sports and to have that experience where it's generational and you can be a part of someone's early spark that gets them into the sport is really fun and and 25 years was an amazing run it was time to go you know when I left after 2014 and just focus on games but I'll never have anything because very few people have anything like that where you can be a part of, of it had gone on for a few years I don't want to disrespect there were game day existed before i hosted it but okay the, the 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 show just wasn't respected by the company it was on life support they weren't right, sure what right. they would do with it right and so just by a, a small group of us at that point nurturing it and getting it to where 
it sort of gained some traction. I'm, I'm immensely proud of that. It was a blast to do, super challenging show to do uh, for a lot of reasons, but that's what made it fun too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you move on to do uh, a lot more play-by-play -play work, uh, mostly with Kirk Herbstreet. Again, I mean, that friendship, in, in a serious manner, my friendship with Kirk must be uh, enormous. And he seems like, never met him in my life. You and I had never met in person, but he seems like such a solid guy. Just his own air presence makes you like him, like you. But he, uh, well, I know you spent a lot of time with he's, him. He's just as authentic off the air, too. I think people connect with that. They understand his passion for the sport, his his work ethic, his sense of responsibility for the huge platform that he has and, and how hard he, he, he just never lets up. He's relentless. And very few people, if anyone, could juggle what he juggled this past season doing NFL on Amazon on Thursdays, college game days on Saturday mornings, our games on Saturday night. I mean, and, you know, do that for 15, 16 weeks um, and somehow maintain your, your battery being charged was, was pretty crazy. And, <laughs> and our friendship helps us through that too, because we don't have a lot of time to really focus on, Hey, how do you see this game? What are the keys for you? What are the keys for you? We, honestly, we have very few conversations like that. And right. we can only do that because we've done 27 seasons together. So, right, right. Um, so, when thinking about that dynamic with you and Herb Street, you've worked with a lot of other analysts in football and in tennis. One guy that's been on my show uh, a few times is a guy I got to know when I was at Tennis Channel, Bill McAtee, who I'm sure you know Bill. He's called mm -hmm. tennis and, and he's called NFL and obviously the Masters. Now, Bill is similar you and that he has called football have you done nfl chris i had to ask you that done a, just a couple of games did some okay. games uh, the last couple of years but not in a regular okay race. okay so i was just trying to to make the parallel so when bill was on the show um he talked a lot about the tremendous analysts that he has been fortunate enough to work with over the years and he talked about mary perillo john and patrick McEnroe, jim courier uh martina with tennis channel uh, here's what Bill said with respect to the dynamic between him and the analyst next to him. And I wanted to get your opinion on it. He said, if the analyst looks good and shines, then I've done my job. If the analyst is good, then I'm good. I try to take a secondary role to that person. So it was speaks for itself. He wants them to shine. Now, is that how you approach it, or is that your mentality? I know everyone has a different thought when they sit next to that athlete or analyst or whoever it might be. I think it's all about me, and I don't really care what they do. I mean, they could know. They, they, I'm kidding. I, of course, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I think what Bill said is very smart. I mean, I, whether right. you're doing tennis or any sport, I mean, I, I, would, I would say that, you know, you are responsible for certain important aspects of, of calling a match. Right. And and getting the score right is essential. Scene <laughs> setting is important. Storylines, sensing momentum changes. But as in football, you know, the the person that's played the sport at the high level, their expertise is essential to helping people at home understand the flow of a match. Only them are qualified to, to go into the mind of the player. And I leave that right. stuff to John, to Patrick, to Darren Cahill, to Brad Gilbert, to Chrissy Ever, to Mary Jo Fernandez, uh, uh, all James Blake, all the folks that I'm lucky to work with on our team. And, you know, it, I think it's, I have learned so much from sitting next to all of those people over the years. 
I work, you know, Couriers, Jim Curry's a good, very good friend. I work with him. He's at ESPN. I work with Mary Gorilla my, my first years at ESPN and learned a lot from Mary as well. Um, you know, and, and all of them are so different. All of them view the sport we love in a very different way. And that's the beauty yeah. of it. That's what I think, you know, Bill's talking about. The way John views a match is not the same way as Darren Cale or Brad Gilbert or his brother Patrick. And so my job is to help the viewer connect with the way that they see the match and draw it out of them through years of experience and knowing a lot about how those guys will view a match and, and then follow up, push them, get them maybe to go farther than they were going to normally go out of their yeah. comfort zone so that the viewer benefits from that. And then right. if the match is lopsided, I mean, I, we just got to, we got to bullshit our way through and try to keep people entertained <laughs> and have fun with it. I mean, I mean, that happens a lot in tennis and yeah. football. We've all done the matches where I'm sitting there with Chrissy and it's like, <laughs> okay, it's one of the biggest matches on the tennis calendar. And it's like uh, <laughs> six, one, four love. But we got, you know, the outcome is pretty clear. Right, right. Although you do never know in tennis, it can turn on a dime. But, but you, you get my point. There's many, many matches that get out of hand where, the moment by moment competitive tension isn't there. And then you rely a lot on your analysts to sort of give perspective on something else that's going on in the tournament, something else that's going on in the lives of those players or in the sport in general, or, or somebody in the crowd or whatever you got at that point to keep people entertained. And there's a real art in that. And, and I think that's what my role is, is largely about is when it doesn't, come through the screen with this amazing, compelling drama. Because when it does, you step out of the way and you shut right. up, hopefully, and let it happen. When a match doesn't meet that standard, then you want to get into some stuff and try to keep people engaged, as we did in the Aussie final, when it was pretty clear that, that Djokovic was going was gonna to roll through Sitsipas. Right. Well, and when you go to football, how you and Herb Street kept that TCU-Georgia game going for so long, that's, that's another story. But I'm guessing, Chris, that with Kirk, because you've worked with him so long, it probably wasn't as difficult as if you were working with somebody that you hadn't worked with. As much. I mean, that was I was getting I mean, entertained. Like, I'm going to keep it here. I don't want to say this. It's, 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 it's not what you hope for. But you'd rather right, document right. Like a classic. I mean, we had an amazing semifinal. So oh, yeah. we take con consolation in that, that the, the Ohio State-Georgia game was one for the ages. Um, and we had had some other pretty good games down the stretch of the season. The, the championship game obviously was a massive thud. No one likes to end a season punctuated by that kind of a beatdown. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, in some ways, 65-7, because it's so historically lopsided, is almost more entertaining or compelling than some like, you know, 28 to three game or something where it's just, it's one-sided dull and unremarkable. This at least yeah. was, Hey, we ain't never going to see anything like this again. <laughs> this, <laughs> right. never see a, a, a championship game like that, maybe in any sport. Right. Okay. Right. I don't say that lightly. I, I, I believe that might be the single most lopsided championship event we ever see. Absolutely. So we had that going for us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, it might have been when your friend John McEnroe beat Chris Lewis in Wimbledon at Wimbledon in the early uh, 80s. That's what Bjorn Borg was doing. Bjorn Borg was the analyst <laughs> on that. You remember, and we tell this story because he worked with Dick Enberg, who you mentioned, and Dick was a dear friend and a mentor and a guy that I met actually when I was a really young kid. 
And it was, it was through his lens that I learned to love and appreciate Wimbledon. And Bjorn was working with the Denver for that match you just talked about. And <laughs> they were trying to build it up. What a story. Johnny McEnroe, you know him well before you retired. Obviously, he was your rival. Here's Chris Lewis, this young kid from New Zealand. Yada, 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 yada. And he turns to Borg and Bjorn goes, yeah, he has no chance for sure. <laughs> so, rematch, rematch. The great Bjorn Borg has said, this is, a, this is a first run. And he was right, of course. I mean, it was a oh, first yeah. run. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty glad I wasn't on the call for that one with with, right. with Bork in the bunker. Yeah. <laughs> so one guy that may be sitting down in that analyst chair, if you believe the rumors, potentially this summer with the BBC is a little guy named Roger Federer. I don't know if that you might know more than me, but I've heard rumors that he will be with the BBC uh, this summer. Now I'm not sure. Actually, is it is it true? I I've heard it, but do you know that Roger will be? I, I, I don't know that for a fact. I, I've heard okay. the same thing as you, but it would certainly make sense to me. I think Roger would, Roger would be interested in doing tennis commentary in a very limited basis. And I right, think, you right. know, I mean, the Wimbledon, where obviously he, you know, he, he missed a couple of years there. Uh, one more time with the family to have their usual summer vacation while working a little TV and doing some sponsor stuff really appeals to him. And obviously it would be a lot of fun. To, to hear Roger sort of describe matches through his lens. I don't know if we'll be lucky enough to see him do that on a more regular or long-term basis, but very few of the all-time greats want to do that, want to travel right. and grind. That's why it's so cool for us that, that Johnny Mac does. Yeah. But I, I'm going to be very interested to, 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 you know, maybe I'll just sneak in the, uh, the BBC bunker, which is just diagonal across the court from ours and, and see what's up with Roger. So this isn't going to, so Tony Godzik's not trying to negotiate a 10 year, $375 million deal, <laughs> a, AKA Tom well, he Brady. Probably, he probably is, but I don't know <laughs> if that's what the BBC has in mind. <laughs> well, it, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, and this is what Bill, I, you know, Bill is somebody I've talked to a couple of times. So I had uh, some questions coming from that interview I had with him, but, you know, Bill was talking about how some, athletes make that easy transition to the boot tony tony romo was one of them he was you know I, I don't know what you think of him or i don't know how he's universally liked but that first year you could tell he knew what he was doing others haven't made that transition as well you know johnny mack obviously made it now it, knowing what you know i mean is there any chance that these two, you know, goats, if you want to call them that, Roger Federer and Tom Brady, will have any problem making that transition because they were so good <laughs> at what they did. Is, is there, it almost seems like it's a given they'd be good. But again, you've been, you're on the other side of it, you know, running the yeah, show. I, I wouldn't, I will say this, that there have been a lot of, I don't know, that level of greatness, Brady and Federer. I mean, talk about like the Mount Rushmore in any sport, right? I mean, <laughs> right. But, but many people who have been incredibly accomplished athletes haven't achieved the same level of excellence in broadcasting. I think right. many more don't than do. That's why I think, you know, when John gets complimented, hey, I like, I think you're even a better broadcaster than you were a player. At first he was like, what the hell are you talking about? I would. You know, I was number one in the world, but then he understood that, oh, no, that makes 
you a really good broadcaster too, John. They're, they're complimenting you. I think that Charles Barkley is someone, he doesn't call basketball games, but his studio work obviously uh, with Turner is amazing. And Charles yeah. is a, and you know, there, there's someone who was great as a player and is great as a broadcaster, but there, there's not a huge, when I say great, I mean like elite, elite, elite. Like, you know, like Mike, Michael Jordan didn't step in the booth. I, I, I doubt LeBron is going to, um, you know, I, you know, Wayne Gretzky does some studio work, doesn't call hockey games, which I think is different. Um, and Roger, if he's in there analyzing matches, I want to hear what he has to say. I, I, I right. think there's every reason to believe he would be amazing because his passion for the sport is, is great. I, it, it, it probably doesn't surprise you being around the sport, but it surprises a lot of people. Right. that there are a lot of players who gave their life to professional tennis, or at least a good chunk of it, who, who don't love the sport as much as you think they would. And I right. mean love it after they've done playing. They don't come around. They don't watch a lot. They don't hit balls. I mean, I'm not going to name names, but there's a lot of people in that camp, and therefore they don't necessarily want to make the commitments to go broadcast tennis. Yeah, and that's yeah. anybody on my side of it, what Bill would tell you, what you want to see, whether it's an ex-coach or an ex-player, no matter how accomplished they were, they take the new career seriously. Because Roger's going to be doing something different in that bunker than it is hitting a ball on the court. Okay, that's right. his, his brilliance in one should give you an amazing insight, but the job is very different. And tennis players who come into TV as commentators quickly figure out you know, how collaborative it is. I think right. for John, he's really enjoyed that part of it at ESPN. We have a big tennis team. You mentioned Martina, tennis channel. There's a bunch of people involved in that that she works with. I see Martina all the time. She also lives in South Florida. You know, so, I mean, she is an obviously ultra, ultra, ultra great player who does a lot of great work in TV, but I don't ever take that for granted because you got to right. have a different skill set and you've got to have an enduring passion and commitment to get on planes, to show up, to work a lot of matches that are not amazing and a lot of different tournaments and still deliver the goods. And I, you know, I, like I said, I hope that Roger does a lot more of it than just one tournament with BBC, but um, it, it remains to be seen. Yeah. Well, just sticking quickly on Federer, uh, the morning of September 15th, 2022 rolls around. And that morning, the big three, as we have come to know them, was confronted with the inevitable, the announcement of Roger retiring that he did on uh, Twitter. Now, that was such a big moment in my life. Anybody that loves tennis and loves Roger, one of those events where you're going to remember where you were. I talked to Patrick about it. He told me exactly where he was and who he called. And do you remember that morning, Chris? Because uh, a yeah, lot I, of people. I was in a hotel room. I was in a hotel room <laughs> in Texas, covering a football game when it came down, and immediately, um, obviously, the tennis world sort of like goes into <laughs> goes into meltdown mode, and everybody wants to talk about that. And and a lot of us, you know, who who, who love the sport and and were fortunate enough to 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 know Roger well and cover a million of his matches. You know, obviously, that's a massive topic it wasn't a surprise i think when roger didn't show up at wimbledon um and sort of let his summer plans be known 
it was pretty clear at that time that Labor Cup was going to be it for him yeah. and that he would orchestrate his farewell at the event that he you know, owns a piece of. So that made yeah. sense. But I think so the finality of it still hits hard for people. Yeah. Well, as far as the Labor Cup goes, I mean, in hindsight, it was uh, it was a spectacle. All of the images with him and Rafa and the crying. Um, did you? I'd have been there crying too, by the way, if I didn't have to cover <laughs> college football. I would, I would have flown to London to witness he, he and Rafa playing doubles together because I, I like the Labor Cup. I think that's actually really cool. I went to it once when it was in Chicago, and and I thought that was an amazing event. And you know, it was great theater, but no, no, uh, no Hollywood ending for him. And I thought that was another powerful example yeah. that sports are about competition, you know, and, and you don't expect the two American guys to be sentimental, you know, I mean, I don't think Jack and Tiafo, I, they're not, they're not trying to like hand him a win to let him right. go out in style that is as though this was some orchestrated, you know, WWE plot. I mean, no, no, right. they wanted to win. They wanted to win the point for their team. Right. But also I beat Federer partnering with Rafa in his last match. I mean, that's a pretty cool thing. And and I found I found a beauty in that result, even though it wasn't the sentimental um, victory that everybody kind of wanted to see. I still found beauty in that, that, you know yeah. what, it matters. And these guys were competitive about it and it made it feel real. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, another legend that may, and I emphasize may not come back on the court where we have always seen her and always respected her and loved her is Serena Williams. She's doing a lot of uh, Super Bowl commercials these days, as you saw. Uh, it was good to see her. Hadn't seen her in a while. Now, Chris, do you think there is any chance that she could uh, pull a Tom Brady and, and unretire? And again, I don't know if you have any more information than I do as far as how realistic that is, but... Could you see that happening with her? Is she officially retired? I mean, I, I it's well, sort of she, it, it, no, it no, kind no. of I'm that kidding. limbo where it, once you once you retire as a player, I think it affects your deals. So okay. I think a lot of players don't like to I officially think I, yeah. get that. Okay. I think I said that incorrectly. She said in that Vogue article that she was moving away. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, do, I certainly believe that she's played her last match. I, anything is possible. Um, I, I think that you know, listen, I mean, it was an amazing historic run. And, and to be able to call as many Serena Williams matches as I was able to call and, you know, from her from her win in Australia in 03, when she completed the Serena Slam by by defeating Venus in the final. Yeah. That was the first Grand Slam final I ever called. I had no business calling it. I was a little green and didn't, didn't do a great job. But to be able to witness it and I think to be able to – call so many of her amazing highs tough battles and really stinging lows too uh, i mean i called all four of the grand slam finals that she played as a mom trying to get that one more title and and, and falling short in those finals and, and not playing her best and the sting of that so yeah. I, I feel like I feel like just like just like her fans and viewers feel and a lot of the people on my team feel we lived and observed, you know, so much of Serena's life on the court for so many years. And I, I'm, I'm just so grateful to have been able to do it and then hang yeah. out off court a little bit to get to know her. 
because you know we covered the Miami tournament when she was down there yeah. in Key Biscayne and hanging out and you know, there might have been some cocktails after hours at the beach bar. <laughs> you see players in a very different light. And Serena was, yeah. was great, great fun. You know, when she wasn't, you know, a serious business of being a megastar with the killer looking her eyes on the court. I mean, she was, you know, great fun. And yeah. I, I think that I feel privileged to have just a few moments um, with with her, with with people like Rafa, I spent some time off yeah. the court with, been lucky to. Roger to some degree, Novak to some degree, and and Andy Murray to a greater degree, and and those are those are memories that I will always always cherish, as well as you know being lucky enough to call their matches. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've kept you for probably too long, but there's one thing I really wanted to talk about. I think it's very important to you. You know, I told you that I've seen you call so many sporting events and host so many uh, shows on the desk, studio shows. You know ancillary stuff when you're at events um i i came up with a number that i think is about 1500 games studio shows everything that i've seen you call so that's a you know that's a lot of i, I don't know where you get that stuff. number i i can't i can't vouch for your math I, but it's I, it's fun to hear <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of it, chris a lot of it is just sheer timing coming up at the exact same time I was in high school, Scholastic Sports America. I was 18 when you were doing college football. You know, okay. so so take that as it is. Now, the thing that I never knew about you was this side, and it, this was, to be fair, it was pre-social media, podcast era, where, you know, talent or people in the public eye couldn't give as much of themselves as they can now via those mediums now i didn't realize you had such a deep commitment to studying human behavior and how we overcome obstacles and and, <laughs> and the man and the manner in which we understand how and why we react to people my dad was a psychiatrist so i i identify okay. with a lot of what you a lot of what you do i, well, I have you know. no degrees unlike your dad i have no expertise in anything <laughs> other than a lot of observed experience and i think that I mean, I, who doesn't find human beings fascinating? I mean, yeah. for all of our flaws and all of our amazing qualities. So I think if you hang around for 60 years on the planet and you observe and you have a <laughs> curiosity about yourself, and I think curiosity is one of the key things in, in my job, but, but in anybody who's successful in anything, I can tell you have a curiosity about a lot of things. And that is a key component. If you're out there listening and you want to figure out what is a key to success, that might not be obvious, be curious about things. Have a curiosity about a wide range of things and a thirst to know more and ask smart questions and observe people who do things well. And that's that's served me really well because yeah. I, I just have a curiosity about lots of things. And I have a lot of interest beyond sports, which surprises people who think you live in this little screen and talk only about two things. But I mean, it's a pretty damn small percentage of my time is yeah. actually spent in a booth covering tennis or football or preparing for it, for that matter. I, right. I have chunks of time off and it's it's intentional. It's structured that way because I like yeah. to get away and climb mountains and and travel and chill and listen to music. And I have a vinyl collection. There's a lot of things that like, we're all multidimensional. Are we we 
should aspire to be right. And I, I've yeah. been able to hang around a lot of wise people and just kind of listen to some of the stuff and try to manifest it. And, and I think that um, social media is just a place where you can sort of share, not all. I mean, I think sharing all is embarrassing. There's people who overshare. We all know what that's like. And I'm not, hey, here's a piece of fish I had for lunch. Who cares? I mean, <laughs> but I think if you sit around and you think about, hey, you know, I, I've, I've been kicking this topic around and talking to some friends about it and reading about it. So let me talk about the nature of apologies, which is my latest <laughs> video. Let me talk right. about, you know, building a reputation as being a reliable person. And that's something that I think is, is crucial. And so a million people watch that video. That's crazy, Randy. Like that's, <laughs> you talk into a phone for like a minute, you throw it <laughs> online and like a million people see it. I mean, that's, you know, you, ha you have the ability to spew out your ideas on anything and have a large number of people see it, agree, reject, discuss, come back at you. And, and all of that to me, to a degree, is interesting. I mean, I don't think we can give a ton of energy on, hey, what what, what do people think? How, how many likes do they get? How many followers do I have? I mean, that's not really what it's about for me. It's, it's just self-expression and an outlet and also just a fun way to sort of take the temperature and throw stuff out there. So very little of what I talk about on, on Instagram actually is sports. Probably should do more because people kind of look to me for it. But on the other hand, I feel like I want that and the podcast, which is not a sports pod. We have a lot of people on there who, who have a sports background. We talk sports with a right. lot of guests who aren't athletes because that's their touchstone with with coming on my pod. But essentially, it allows me to learn a lot about a lot of different things that really I find interesting. You know, you do a podcast on tequila, which I love to drink. You learn a lot about tequila. <laughs> and, and that's that's great. <laughs> Well, I will say there is some sports on your social media, and it's some of my favorite stuff. The nightcap after that Saturday night game, I love it. I absolutely love it's it. It's sports, but it's thank you. I, it's very different from what I do on TV, which is which is why it's fun. Like we, you know, we we did the same thing. What do people do after a game? You sit around, you have a couple of drinks, and you talk about what you just saw. What an amazing day in college football! Well, we decided to just record it, and it is so. You know, it's it's intentionally raw. We're not trying to be slick and we're not trying to be polished and have it look like coverage you see on ESPN. And that's why I think it connects with the book because it is different. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, it sounds like even though the people that are in that plane or bus or wherever you are, <laughs> are the ones that have just called that game and know more about college football than anybody. It does sound like me and four guys at the bar. What happened here today? I, I mean, I consider that a compliment. <laughs> Uh, so the very last thing, and I know you, this, you've been on for too long, I, I actually, in my research, I was looking up some of Chris Fowler's greatest calls of all time. And, you know, it was the Alabama touchdown to beat Georgia. And it's all, you know, goes through your career. And then I was thinking about some other ones. There's Larry Munson, Lindsey Scott, Lindsey Scott, Lindsey Scott. And then there is, uh, and you know all these calls, Rob, Rob Bramlett, when he called, Auburn's going to win the football game. Auburn's, you have, it, and you had a lot of them, but is there one that's your signature or that you're known for? Like, uh, um, I don't know, the Giants win the pennant or um, Havlicek stole the ball. Or Do you have yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> the common thread is that those are all great plays and big moments. So right. when you when you have a chance to be around championship events and are lucky enough to do it a long time, you know, you hope to have those moments where, you know, the athlete is the story and the play is what's remembered. And you just have the opportunity to because you're you know on the headset that night to sort of lay your voice on top of it and you hope uh, meet the moment say right. something that might embellish it and not detract from it. And so I think that you, know, you I, I tend to go to, you know, there, there's, there's all sorts of things. I'm not one who's very reflective. I don't sit back and think, well, that was the best one or that was a bad call. <laughs> but I think that, you know, when you call championship events, whether it's, um, you know, the, the interception for Georgia that clinched it against Alabama um, two seasons ago, Right. Um, the Alabama touchdown was a very simple call. It was just, you know, yeah. all I did was bring touchdown Alabama wins and their fans get excited <laughs> about that. That was a very simple call that I think I could have gone farther. I could have done better at actually. Right. But right. I think that a lot of the tennis calls, you know, people think you sit there and think of what to say. And you you can't do that in a tennis match. You, you go into a final thinking, okay, if Djokovic wins this, like, what would it mean? What 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 would it say? What 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 is important? And I, I think that, you know, I'm proud of our ability as a production through through pictures and and my fellow commentators to sort of capture some pretty incredible matches over yeah. the years and sort of have a chance to put a stamp on that. And and wh whether it's just one, you, you mentioned some of the great radio people in football and those kinds of calls live forever. But I think that I, I'm more proud of sort of over the course of a, of a three or four hour game, a four or five hour match, being able to be on top of the changes in momentum, the shifts, the tells, the, and just being right dialed in along with your analysts on those moments. And I think that we've had the chance to do a lot of big matches that I'm very proud of. Yeah. And whether or not you say the right thing when Andy Murray finally wins Wimbledon or, you know, Serena completes another amazing feat, you know, you hope you do. Um, you know, I'm a very, very tough critic of myself. So I promise you that anybody that criticizes me um, out there over the years, and there have been plenty, and it's been justified a lot of the time, you know, you're no, you're no tougher on me than I am on myself. Right. So, right. Um, but, I, but I think that, you know, you, you hope over time that, uh, that your record stands, stands up and you, you have met the moment when the moment has been presented to you. And that's, that's all anybody who does what I do want, wants to do. Absolutely. Well, again, Chris, thanks so much for coming on. I am so glad that we <laughs> were finally able to do this. And, you know, thanks for thanks for what you do, because it, it, in the boot, not and some of what you do on social media now, really, you know, it, it, it doesn't help me, just me, but it helps a lot of people. And I think, you know, you might not realize that when you're doing it, but a lot of these tips and thoughts um, and what you do on your podcast really helps people and without a doubt. So I think, you know, that's admirable because you're already helping so many people just by calling so many games, coming into their living room and making them feel good about sports. So uh, point I'm trying to make is uh, in your work, whether it's on the air or whether it's through social media or your podcast, um, you affect people in a positive way. And you've affected me in a positive way tonight 
by coming on the show. <laughs> well, that's really, really kind. I enjoyed it a lot. I appreciate what you do. And um, yeah, and thanks. It was, it was fun to reflect. And and uh, I don't really talk about these kinds of things very often, but when I get a chance to, uh, I enjoy it. So thanks for the opportunity.